the last word on Today FM with Matt Cooper. I'm delighted now that we're joined for the Culture Club by the comedian David O'Doherty, who is also the author of the new book, The Summer I Robbed a Bank. Is that a memoir or a how-to manual, David? I mean, I would really be landing myself in it. <laughs> It'd be like that uh, book that OJ wrote afterwards, <laughs> and I promise it's not like that, Matt. This is your seventh children's book. What got you into writing children's books, and how enjoyable is it for you? Yeah, I really, I, did, I maybe I was dropped on the head as a as a child or something, but I, I I remember quite vividly what it's like to be nine, ten, particularly that age where the world's you start to realize it's a bit more complicated than you had imagined, and maybe your teachers don't know everything and your parents don't know everything. So yeah, I enjoy writing for those kids. When you say your parents don't know everything, I was fascinated to read an interview you did with Patrick Fain in the Irish Times recently about spending time in Ackle for the first lockdown last year because of COVID and spending time with your parents who are now getting on a bit. They're in their early 80s. How was that for you? (laughs) It was an amazing experience. Well, I mean, I think it's important we all remember how, what a strange time March 2020 was in that... I remember we left Dublin on about the 10th of March and, you know, dad genuinely wasn't sure if he'd see my sister again. And then we settled into island life. My granny spent most of her time down there. So it's somewhere we've always gone. And yeah, I mean, it turned into the most amazing five months. I mean, amazing slash terrifying. But I I learned a lot. Uh, My mum is an amazing chef and my dad is a amazing musician and they love each other very much and that's an amazing thing to be around two 83 year olds who just are so comfortable in their own skin. Of course your dad must have been a major influence on you particularly with his music. He'd be very well known I think to a certain generation. He was a regular on RT for many years wasn't he on things like the Late Late Show and afternoon programming playing jazz and other music. Yeah he was he was the go-to guy for, I mean, he would have, he's, he wrote stuff like The Safe Cross Code and uh, Wanderly Wagon and tunes like that. But I mean, that was, that was kind of the, the, the day job to his jazz work, you know, which, which was incredible. He would, he was regarded as, or would be regarded as one of the country's foremost jazz musicians still. We actually, oh, instead of having a little bit of his jazz to play, we do have a clip from the theme to Wanderly Wagon. <laughs> David, I, I hadn't remembered the riff into the electric guitar and the synthesizer. It's it's very Steely Dan. Like, and that's exactly what he was. So there's a legendary birthday party in my uh, family, which is before I was born. It's my brother and sister's joint, I think, sixth or seventh birthday party. And all the kids are in the sitting room 
you know, and they're all asking the question, hey, what is this party? Are we <laughs> going to the park? Are we going to go to the cinema? What's going on? And the double doors opened into the dining room and dad had got the cast of Wanderly Wagon <laughs> in costume all in the dining room. And the description was that it was similar to having Star Wars take place in your own house. It was the one channel Ireland uh, early 80s version of Star Wars, that party, and no party ever came close to it again. Yeah, having done that for your brother and sister, when you came along, what was done for your parties? I remember he used to try and do interesting stuff. He'd take us all into the theatre. The coolest birthday party I had was we went to see the Christmas show in the Peacock one year and I remember thinking saying afterwards dad that was great wasn't it and he was like no didn't like it and I'll tell you what we're going to do for next birthday party I'm going to write a show and it's going to be in the peacock and he did and that was I think the best birthday present that I ever got he wrote you your own Christmas show as a birthday present (laughs) it was called the Lugnaquilla Gorilla and it starred (laughs) Frank Kelly Father Jack and an amazing cast and was about a gorilla loose in the Wicklow Mountains (laughs) Brilliant. I love it. Okay, let's get to some of the choices. We'll ask you the questions we ask all of our guests here on the Culture Club each week. So the first single you remember, and there is a connection to your dad in this as well, I think. Yeah, this is... So <laughs> what what so dad's career was playing these beautiful jazz concerts and writing music for the symphony orchestra and big bands but that's not really what put football boots on the table for me uh, it was writing jingles and uh, tunes for advertising and for radio shows and there were three big writers in Dublin at the time there was my dad there was Bill Whelan, who would go on to do Riverdance, obviously. And then there was Sean Davey, who, uh, aside from writing uh, Monona Heron or the beautiful arrangement that Kate Bush did of that, he also wrote Penny. He's got a whole lot of things for Christmas, which I think might be top <laughs> Got a lot for your family. Sorry, <laughs> it has just come back to me from the recesses of my brain. Sorry. But he also wrote this, which is one of the great... I think this was it was on the music for the leaving cert for a long time and it's a tune that's just seared into my brain. I, I love it. I think of it at times of stress and times of joy. It's uh, I think it's the first single that I remember dropping the needle on. And I don't know how it got into the house, but it's um Ripples in the Rock Pool by Rita Connolly and Sean Davy. Let's hear it.
ripples in the rock pools, ripples in the sea, ripples in the sand dunes, rolling into Connemara. Ripples in the rock pools, ripples in the sea, ripples in the sand dunes, rolling into Connemara. For whatever reason, David, I'm suddenly thinking of a Connemara version of Robin of Sherwood. Yeah, <laughs> I, it's funny. I think of the Columini character in Intermission, who before he goes out, he's a guard. And before he goes out on any sort of mission, listens to Clannad oh, and that yeah. sort of Celtic music <laughs> of that era. And then the funny thing is that uh, years later, one of my best friends to this day is Kathy Davey, uh, one, another of our great songwriters, who's Sean Davey's daughter. Okay, it's fascinating stuff. Okay, we asked you as well for favourite band or artist. You've nominated a couple, Randy Newman and the aforementioned Steely Dan. Uh, tell us why, both of those. <laughs> They're both very uh, Los Angeles. The I went on one of those J1 visas in 1996 with with Paul Murray, actually, who will go on to write Skippy Dies and uh, a bunch of great books. And happened to be in a Borders bookshop in America uh, one day in San Francisco. And Randy Newman sat down at the piano. I vaguely knew who Randy Newman was. And 30 minutes later, I, I'm not going to say I decided I would be a comedian, but I certainly knew that I didn't have the piano chops that he had. But the fact that he was able to mix music and being so funny and then sort of beautiful uh, from moment to moment. That was a gig that had a huge effect on me. And then Steely Dan, where, so there was, it was the, Steely Dan was the one rock band it was okay to listen to in our jazz household. And consequently, I went the other way and I listened to a lot of punk and all of that to try and horrify my father and my brother who just listened to Steely Dan the whole time. And I remember the specific day, Matt, I was sitting on the loo and I think Reeling in the Years was probably playing, which I hated. I always hated it. And I remember realizing for the first time, oh, no, I think I might be starting to like this. <laughs> and now as a 45 year old, I still listen to them most days. OK, well, as it isn't Reeling in the Years that we have. It's Ricky Don't Lose That Number. Nothing wrong with that. that in ages David it is brilliant yeah it's I mean Matt I could nerd out on all this stuff but that's uh, the baseline 
of a Horace Silver jazz tune called Song for My Father. <laughs> and uh, I think that's why it was allowed in my house, because it, it had jazz roots. And there's one other that you've nominated, and that's Villagers. Why so? Yeah, I, I uh, Conor O'Brien is I, 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 just as contemporary Irish songwriters, he's just different to everyone else. And every album seems to be a tiny bit different and actually quite different. And there's a new one coming out soon. But there's a, a tune of his uh, called Set the Tigers Free that is the song that I always play through the PA and the venue uh, before every gig that I ever do. I don't know, it's just the right side of uh, sort of, it's not too up-tempo, but it gets the vibe going for whatever dribbly comedy I'm about to give them. Let's hear it. set the tigers free just clarify for me David O'Doherty is that what you play to yourself to incentivize yourself before you take to the stage or is that what you play to the audience as a warm up to get them going yeah you see there's a popular myth that you play very, very up-tempo. You play Jump Around by House of Pain before <laughs> you start your comedy gig. But Matt, that is exactly the opposite of what you want the audience to be doing. So I prefer to drop the lights, play a mid-tempo, thoughtful song, and then after that, they are ready to laugh their guts out. <laughs> okay, we ask every week for a favourite gig, and nearly everyone thinks of a music gig, but it's appropriate that you as a comedian have picked a comedy gig, and you've picked one from the Kilkenny Cats Laughs back in 1998. Uh, who is it and why? Yeah, it was, I was just starting out in comedy, not really sure what I was doing. And uh, the, the amazing thing about that festival is that they've always brought over Americans, uh, people that you wouldn't necessarily have heard of. And uh, that year they brought over a guy called Mitch Hedberg, who uh, passed away uh, about 10 years later, but he would be regarded in comedy circles as the king of one-liners, the sort of uh, person who, the, the keeper of the flame was Stephen Wright and um, Mitch Hedberg then. Uh, what he did was unlike 
what I'd ever seen anyone do before in that normally you come out and you get the attention of the room and you say hello. He came out with his coat still on and a bag and he rummaged in the bag for as long as it took to find a sheet of paper. And then he started to read jokes methodically off the sheet of paper and then comment on how well or badly they've gone down. And I'd never seen comedy done that way before. And it definitely opened a little door in my mind. Let's hear a little bit of him in action. All right, last week I helped my friends stay put. It's a lot easier than helping someone move. <laughs> I just went over to his house and made sure that he did not start to load shit into a truck. <laughs> my friend asked me if I wanted a frozen banana. If I said no, but I want a regular banana later, so yeah. <laughs> guy told me he liked cherries, but I waited to see if he was going to say tomato before I realized he liked cherries just. All right, that joke was ridiculous. That's like a carbon copy of the previous joke with different ingredients. I don't know what I was trying to pull off there. That one might be edited. I can edit the jokes. I have a few cavities. I don't like to call them cavities, I like to call them places to put stuff. Uh, do you know where I can store a pee? Yes, I have some locations available. Mitch Hedberg, live action, strategic gill locations. This is from Koalas. Yes. Yeah, I, it just goes to show you there are a million different ways of doing stand-up comedy and you know, whenever one thing seems to be popular, it's it's very good to listen completely different takes on it. And that's yeah, he was he was absolutely doing his own thing. So a favorite movie. What's it going to be? I, I mean, I thought long and hard about this and, you know, it would be there's a temptation to put up quite a pretentious niche film here. The people who are like, oh, that's a classy guy. But the problem I have with movies, Matt, is that every single one is not as good as Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> I just love Jaws. I watch Jaws, I'd say, twice a year. I love everything about it. And every time in my life, Jaws seems vaguely appropriate. Like all those people who wanted to open up society uh, in the last, whatever, year and a half, they're the mayor from Jaws. You know, everything. Yeah, hang on. Just... Are, you, are you like Boris Johnson? So, because we've learned recently from Dominic Cummings that Boris Johnson saw himself as the mayor of Amity, opening everything up, let it rip. Are you a similar personality, David? No, I don't think I am. I, uh, to quote Dominic Cummings, I guess I'm one of the Spider-Mans. The first <laughs> person ever to pluralise a single word like that. I'm one of the Spider-Mans just pointing at other people going, don't open now, please, Michael O'Leary. I don't want to buy your flights at the moment. <laughs> OK, we have a little bit from Jaws. Well, it's a, a significant bit of Jaws, actually, with Robert Shaw as Quint talking about his first shark encounter. Didn't see the first shark for about half an hour. Tiger, 13-footer, you know. You know that when you're in the water, Chief, you tell by looking from the dorsal to the tail. What we didn't know was our bomb mission had been so secret no distress signal had been sent. 
they didn't even list us overdue for a week. Very first light, Chief. Sharks come cruising. So we formed ourselves into tight groups. You know, it's kind of like old squares in a battle, like you see in a calendar, like the Battle of Waterloo, and the idea was, shark comes to the nearest man, that man, he start pounding and hollering and screaming, and sometimes the shark would go away. Sometimes he wouldn't go away. Sometimes that shark, he looks right into you, right into your eyes. You know the thing about a shark, he's got lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eyes. When he comes at you, he doesn't seem to be living until he bites you. And those black eyes roll over white and then... Oh, then you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming. The ocean turns red, and in spite of all the pounding and the hollering, they all come in and they rip you to pieces. That's a great clip, isn't it, David? Yeah, and the thing about my life is everything seems to go back to Ackle Island, and Robert <laughs> Shaw was with John Lennon on his legendary trip to Ackle Island uh, when John Lennon uh, tried to buy an island or did buy an island, I think, off uh, in Clue Bay. And then there was a point in the pandemic last year where I was living in Ackle with my parents where uh, things were bad. It was down to it went from 5K to 2K. You weren't allowed uh, off the island. And then the basking sharks all appeared off the coast, these 25-foot monsters. Now, granted, they don't kill you, Matt. I realize that. But I remember thinking, wow, it's really like I am living in Jaws now. <laughs> all right, let's move forward to favorite television shows. And you were somebody whose comedy was influenced, I believe, by Blackadder and the Young Ones. Yeah, I... I so Granny spent a lot of the year in Ackle and so to the drive across, it used to be a six hour drive from Dublin to Ackle and dad loved old BBC radio comedy. He had hundreds and hundreds of tapes of stuff like uh, The Goon Show and then Round the Horn. And then there's a kind of an inevitable move from that to Monty Python. And then the next big group to take over then are the Rowan Atkinson and Richard Curtis, who would go on to do all those uh, movies, and Ben Elton. And they, Ben Elton wrote The Young Ones. And then, yeah, Blackadder, the second series of Blackadder, the Elizabethan series, was the one TV show that, like, you had to see. When I was in school, when I was about 11, it was you had to have seen last night's episode in order to remain a relevant cultural entity the next day in the playground. Let's hear a little bit from series two when Robbie Coltrane plays Samuel Johnson presenting his dictionary. I believe, sir, that the doctor is trying to tell you that he is happy because he has finished his book. It has apparently taken him ten years. Yes, well, I'm a slow reader myself. <laughs> Here it is, sir, the very cornerstone of English scholarship. This book, sir, Contains every word in our beloved language. Ooh. Every single one, sir. Every single word, sir. Oh, well, in that case, sir, I hope you will not object if I also offer the doctor my most enthusiastic contrafibularities. <laughs> contrafibularities, sir? It is a common word down our way. Damn. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, sir. 
I'm anaspeptic, phrasmotic, <laughs> even compunctuous to have caused you such pericombobulation. Flagger. <laughs> Blackout. Now you've also picked one of my favourites as well of the more modern. Although it's, I think it's, it must be nearly thirty years ago now since the day today was at its peak. Oh my goodness! Yeah, it it it, it twenty five anyway. Yeah, it changed the way that you saw the news was going very graphicsy, high octane. Uh, I think that British and Irish news was kind of going the way of American news. And then I think the day to day by Chris Morris, the fake news series of the late 90s, actually stopped it in its tracks because it uh, it, it parodied the techniques that they were using. And it's something that uh, certainly uh, Charlie Brooker has done recently with screen wipes as well. And uh, I just think it's one of those in the history of satire. It'll be looked back upon as one of the most influential shows. Of course, that's where Alan Partridge started out, Steve Coogan doing Alan Partridge, and there's still one classic uh, session where he's interviewing a jockey, where he's asking the jockey if his parents know he's out beyond bedtime and the rest (laughs) of it, even though the guy is clearly in his 40s, but he's so small, it's brilliant. But the one that we have, the clip we have, is where Chris Morris, of course, was absolutely brilliant as the anchor, and this is where he tells Peter O'Hanran, you've lost the news. Mr Crane, choppy waters for the government. Not at all, Peter. Uh, This procedure was entirely proper, and I think the inquiry will prove that the government's handling of this matter was entirely proper. So the government's ship back on course? Absolutely. Back to you, Chris. Peter, what the hell was that? This man's made a big-scale cock-up here. You let him get away with it. Now, let me speak to him. Put your earpiece next to his head and stand still. Now, Minister, there's reason to believe that you lied to the House. How do you answer that? Well, that is a very serious and unfounded allegation, and I'll be making a statement to the House based on the preliminary inquiry next week. A week is a long time in politics. Rab Butler. Shut up, Peter. Now, Minister, did you or did you not lie to the House? I will be making a full statement to the House next week. It's a simple question, yes or no. Did you or did you not lie? I, um... As the Minister for Ships sprawls on the pin, it's back to you, Chris. No, it isn't, Peter. He's about to answer the question. He's about to admit to lying to the House. You've let him get away again. Where's he gone? Over there. Well, get him back. He's in a cab. Peter, you've lost the news. What are you going to say? Sorry. Look like you mean it. Look down at the ground and say sorry. I'm sorry. The day to day. Okay. I mean, is that's before Paxman was full Paxman. So what <laughs> did Jeremy Paxman base himself on the day to day? That's the question. Books, uh, given that you have written your new book, the seventh children's book, The Summer I Robbed a Bank. But what do you read yourself? I read quite a lot. Uh, I read a fair bit of just whatever is new. And uh, Megan Nolan's book, that's come out this year, Acts of Desperation. That's one of the best books I've read for ages. The Dear Nagrifa book, um, Ghost in the Throat, that was amazing. But I think my favourite writer is an American guy called George Saunders. Oh, he's been a who, guest here on the programme previously. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I 
I love his early stuff because it was when he had a job and he used to, he had a Microsoft Word window just hidden at the bottom of his screen. And when no one was around, he'd pop it up and write another paragraph. And I really relate to that as a stand-up comedian who tries to write uh, when you just find time wherever you can to do a little bit more. And I think it's why it lends itself to comedy, the sort of writing that I do, because you're just trying to write short little jokes and uh yeah his his latest book is amazing a book of on uh russian famous russian short stories but uh pastoralia is one of my favorite the brain dead megaphone is a book of his which just invented that idea that is so much uh media today where you know if someone in the corner of a room has a megaphone no matter what they're saying even if it's idiotic everyone in the room soon ends up saying whether they agree or disagree with it and i think that was that was spotting trump 10 years before trump Let's hear a little bit of George Saunders' short story, The Brief and Terrifying Reign of Phil. Then one day, Inner Horner got smaller. It happened without warning. There was a loud, scraping, rock-on-rock sound, and suddenly three-quarters of Elmer, the Inner Hornerite then in residence, was not an Inner Horner at all. That is, every part of Elmer but the octagonal, shovel-like receptacle with which he scooped dirt when nervous was suddenly now located in Outer Horner. Just then, Leon, the Outer Horner border guard, came by on his rounds, noted the presence of three-quarters of Elmer in Outer Horner, and rang the loud buzzer that meant invasion in progress. The Outer Horner militia, Frida, Melvin, and Larry, came rushing over and stood glaring fiercely across the green piece of string that constituted the boundary of the short-term residency zone. "'What are you people trying to pull?' said Larry. "'What's that part of a guy doing in our country?' Our country shrunk, said Elmer, digging nervously in the dirt with his octagonal, shovel-like receptacle. Oh, please, said Frida. You expect us to believe that? Our country never shrinks. Decent countries don't shrink, said Melvin. They either stay the same or get bigger. Well, take a look, said Elmer. And the Outer Horner militia, Frida, Melvin, and Larry, looked into the deep heart of Inner Horner by leaning over the red string that constituted the Inner Horner border and saw that Inner Horner had, in fact, shrunk. Weird, said Melvin. Gross, said Larry. What do we do now, said Frida. George Saunders, The Brief and Terrifying Reign of Phil, his short story. He was with us on The Last Word about four years ago when his book Lincoln and the Bardo won the Man Booker Prize. OK, unfortunately, David Adardi, I'm out of time. I have no more time left. I have to finish the programme, but it has been terrific <laughs> hearing all of your culture club choices. And the new book Some, is The Summer I Robbed a Bank. That's it. A step-by-step guide to robbing banks wherever you are around the world. <laughs> and every child will find it very funny. Thank you very much. David O'Doherty for being with us.